morning, church. Pastor Stephen, good to see you back with us. All right. Um, it's been a long week. It's been a pretty, pretty tough week. Um, so, you know, I know everybody's kind of going through their own things uh, throughout the week. And um, so I, I want to kind of start by just kind of opening up in prayer that the Lord would speak through me, continue in worship of the Lord as we talk about uh, the Christian journey today and we continue on this series um, and we focus on what is a life of worship? What does that look like um, as it overflows out of our life and, and what our identity is? So let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek Him. Uh, Father, uh, I am not worthy uh, to be up here. But Lord, through your kindness and your grace, Lord, you have set my worth before the Father um, for what you have done in your Son. Uh, Lord, I pray right now that you would uh, speak through me, that it would not be my word, but it would be yours, and that, Lord, you um, would be glorified in this message and Lord, that you would challenge us today as we focus on what our identity is in you, who you have called us to be, and what our response should be uh, in a life of worship. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. In your name I pray. Amen. So as you know, we've been building up uh, to this as we have reflected over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I never want you to think that we kind of break our sermons down as um, as topical in a sense, even though they come out to be different topics and different points. But Peter is writing a letter here. Um, he's trying to get something across to the churches that he is writing to. Um, so may it never be that we don't reflect back on what we've already kind of covered because it's flows that way. The way that he's writing it is teaching us something. It's not just uh, a jumbled up part of the text that we find uh, to make good points in. But Peter is actually writing. He's writing uh, consistently throughout scripture and in this letter to help us to understand something. He is uh, getting to various points throughout scripture. And so as we saw uh, over the past couple of weeks, as we reflect back, we think about how we should rejoice in Christ and we live in holy conduct. That's what we focused on last week. And Peter sets this up accordingly so that we understand that without rejoicing in the accomplished work of Christ, right, and loving the Lord with holy lives, it is impossible to worship Him with a prepared heart and to proclaim the message of Christ. So if we come in here with with just the attitude that we're going to, to worship, but we have not set our minds on the, thing of Christ, the things of Christ throughout the week to prepare us for this moment to come collectively together, it is ultimately in vain um, because we have not prepared our hearts and our minds for this moment. Um, so my desire for you to understand today, it is not just a day of worship, it is a lifestyle worship. And that is what we have been called to. Um, that is what Peter is writing here. Um, so Peter now has set this up for the believer to understand who our worship should be founded upon. 
Not only that, but what our role in worship should be and what worship should produce in our life. So I hope you see that today. It's not only that Christ is what our worship should be founded upon, but also the role in our worship, who we should be as believers, what does that mean for us, and then what should be produced out of that as it goes for every day of life, how we should live a life of worship. I found it interesting as we ended last week, uh, Peter segues into worship right after making the statement to taste that the Lord is good. If you remember, I finished there last week. And right before we get into worship, Peter admonishes them to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I hope that's where you're at today in this place, that that is what you have come desiring, that you have left everything else at the door, leave all your burdens, and that you're coming and to taste and see that the Lord is good. Because He is. And, and Peter is reciting this out of Psalm 34a. And listen to it. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And listen to this. Blessed is the man that trusts in Him. So how do we taste and see that the Lord is good? Because we trust in the, the one who has given us his word and his son. So what I'd like for you to do now, as we honor God's word as you stand, I'm going to be going through verse 4 through 10 today. And just follow along with me, please. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture behold I am God I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may sit. Thank you. You see, in verse 4, Peter carries on after saying, Taste that the Lord is good. And he begins to move and transition to this idea that in verse 4, Jesus is the living stone who was rejected by men. It is Jesus that the text is talking about here. And, and remember that the saints here in the let, who were reading this letter in the churches that he was writing to were suffering because of their faith. And he is getting the point across that Jesus was first rejected by men. Now let us think back. I want you to go back to the days of Christ's ministry. And Jesus said many things, many controversial. In John 2, 19, Jesus says this, Destroy this temple, and it will raise up again in three days. 
So here we have Jesus. He's talking about the actual temple. The one that sat in Jerusalem. It's very offensive as he makes this statement. It gets brought up time and time again. Matter of fact, before Stephen was stoned, it is what they accused Stephen of. It's the fact that Jesus is saying, when this temple is torn down, you tear it down and I will build it back up in three days. And it is based off the fact of Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus is called a living stone. He is setting forth a foundation. What does this mean? That in the resurrected Christ, he would establish a new temple, a spiritual temple. Not one made with human hands. Luke 21.5 tells us that disciples were marveling outside of the temple one day. And as they marveled at the structure, you have to remember, this was time and time again the temple had been rebuilt. When Ezra had brought back people and they began to lay forth the foundation, it says they wailed because it was not near as beautiful as what Solomon had built. But it still was a beautiful temple. And as they looked at it from the, the outside, it said that they marveled over it. They were marveling over something that was made by the, man's, the hands of a man. And also of all that was going on inside of it, all the, the, the sacrifices and everything that was taking place, the disciples were marveling over something that man had created. But listen to what Jesus tells them in verse 6 of Luke 21, right after 5, as they were marveling. He says, The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. It will be utterly destroyed and obliterated. The temple that you now see will never stand again. It will be destroyed. Historically, we know this to be true because in AD 70, Rome sacked Jerusalem and they ended up destroying the temple. And guess what was left? Nothing. There was no stone left unturned. What is Jesus striving to get at here he is trying to help people to understand that it is not in temple made with human hands that we should be marveling over but it is the one that is made by spiritual hands by God himself that we should marvel over Jesus is prophesying in both of these verses that never again would God be worshipped in a physical tangible structure but he was building a spiritual temple that would produce spiritual activity. That's what he is getting at here. That never a time again would there be something where you and me would go into and we would have to offer up sacrifices, offer up worship, offer up thanksgiving because that is found in the person of Christ and that happens spiritually. And why do we come together on a Sunday morning? It is because spiritually, collectively as a body, we bring those things to bear. That I know of, we don't have anything that we're offering any incense of thanksgiving or any sacrifices of, of sin guilt because that has been taken care of and accomplished. But we come here collectively because Christ has already become our living stone. See, we come into this place and we offer thanksgiving, worship, and sacrifice in a spiritual sense. Peter begins to lay out the fruition of Christ's work, that Christ was a living stone who was rejected, right? That was prophesied about in the Old Testament. It was told to us that 
Christ was rejected. But in the sight of God, what? He was chosen and he was precious. So by faith in Christ, we have been made into living stones ourselves. Not only was Christ the living stone, but we also are living stones. Notice that we are not just stones. He doesn't say that. We're not just something that we are to be built upon. He gives us that word in there, that active word of living. Meaning that we have life in us. But we are living, breathing, and functional. That we don't come and we don't just sit in seats and then actively not participate in worship and go out into the world and do as God has called us to, to be obedient to Him. I pray that that is not what you come for, that you don't come just to take up a space and a seat and that you just soak in uh, whoever it is up here and the, and the lyrics of the words and songs and that you just take it and go forth and do nothing with it. But we're functional stones. We're living stones. Interesting how we had a heart of stone at once, right? We're told about that. Last week we talked about being futile in our ways. It means we were dead. This demonstrated our death and our sins and our hatred for God. That's where all of us were at before Christ saved us. Before his gospel reached down and changed our hearts and made our life and our desires affectionate towards him. See, we had no functional purpose of worship. Many people today, throughout the world, they're worshiping idols, worshiping all around the world in different ways and different purposes. But they have no functional purpose in their worship. They are not worshiping the true living God. As we were not living but dead. That's how we were. That's why we couldn't produce true worship. See, Christ has made us alive. And as living stones, please get this first, Christ is our cornerstone. If you miss that, you miss everything else. It is not on the basis of you or what you do. But it is on the basis of what Christ has already accomplished. So I hope you see this. Christ is our cornerstone. Not only is he a living stone, as the passage indicates in verse 4, but verse 6 states that he is the chosen and precious cornerstone. That God saw it pleasing to send his son and to put his wrath upon him. That Jesus was the precious and, corner, uh, precious and chosen cornerstone. Not us. He didn't build it on Israel. He didn't build it on the sacrifices and, and that system. Actually, he shows us that that way was only temporary because it could not be lived up to. It could not be accomplished. But only in the work and the person of Christ, he becomes our cornerstone. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen says this, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. Get that? A sure foundation. The truth of Christ will never go away. It will never cease to be true. You can rely on it. That's why it's a sure foundation. When our belief and our trust is in Him, 
We know that it will not ever be beat against, knocked down, that nothing can overcome, that He is our sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic, it goes on to say. So I ask you, what is a cornerstone? When you think about it, I know you've probably studied this before and heard it from other pastors, but it's good to bring it back up. What, what is a cornerstone? What's the purpose and the functionality of it? It is the first stone that's set in the construction as a foundation. So when builders would build, they would set forth the cornerstone in order to be able to construct the rest of the building. Because they knew without that cornerstone there that the building could cave in, that it wouldn't be right. And I'm not a con contractor. I don't know much about building. You won't want me to build your house. <laughs> but I can tell you this, that when Christ is our cornerstone and the church treats him as such, then the foundation of all else, it cannot crumble when we make him the foundation of our life. See, all other stones are set in reference to this stone. Thus, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, everything else, every other stone is set in reference to the cornerstone. And as living stones, we are all being built up. We are all have our purpose and our place in the kingdom of God. It says again, Jesus, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The gospel did not fit the narrative of the Jews, nor does it fit the narrative of this world. I, I hope you understand that. That the gospel does not fit the narrative of this world. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the message of the cross is what? Foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is in that cornerstone. See, the thing is, I don't necessarily know if we trust and believe that Jesus is our cornerstone in our life. Because I see that we entrust ourselves too much for the sake of the gospel. We think it's us and our words that can change people. I'm standing up here speaking now. It is not me that can change your heart. It is the word of the Lord that can change your heart. So the cross, which is that cornerstone, is foolishness to the world. And to those who are perishing, but know this, that it is the power of God to those who are being saved. Do you believe that? And if you do, see a lot of heads nodding, that's good. Are you acting upon it? Is it true in your life? Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, talking about Jesus. Listen to this. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. So I want to come back to this. I want to read to you Matthew seven twenty four through 27. And I'm far, sorry I got my notes off been that kind of week I told you 
But 24 through 27 says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it has its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice. is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let me ask you something. Who is your cornerstone? What is your foundation built upon? Is it built upon something other than Jesus? Because if it is, you are not a functional living stone. It is impossible for you to be so. So first, Jesus is our cornerstone. You have to nail that down. If you don't get it right, if you don't get the gospel right, and the understanding of who Christ is in your life, then you will get everything else wrong. I can read the remainder of these passages and it won't make sense to you. But Jesus is our cornerstone. And it says if it's not built upon him, when tough times come, when suffering comes, and what Peter is writing to here, that their house will crumble because it is built on sand and not on the foundation of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So I hope today that your belief and your trust is in Jesus Christ. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to belief. Is Jesus your cornerstone? Is he the one that you say, Yes, Lord, I trust in you. I put forth my trust in you. You are the Lord of my life. You are my cornerstone. Everything else is founded upon you. Or is it in other things? It shows in your life. It does. Secondly, on the foundation of who he is, we are being built as a spiritual house. So it's important to understand Christ is the cornerstone because we can't be a spiritual house and understand that unless we put it in light of Christ being our cornerstone. Verse 5 says this. It says, we are being built as a spiritual house. So on the cornerstone as individual living stones, we are being built into a dwelling place for our Lord. As I stated already, the Lord does not dwell in places made by human hands, but chooses to dwell in the life of the believer. That goes back. Isn't it interesting? God chooses you and me, and that he dwells in us, and he desires to do so. Could have went about it any other way. But he desires to dwell in me and you and to build us up into a spiritual house where he can dwell and we worship him. Remember who Christ came to tabernacle among. So remember John, we studied this early in our section of John. Jesus came to tabernacle among men. It means to literally to dwell among men. But remember he says, as we left off in John 14, as we go back to 15 here in a few weeks. In 14, it tells us that he'll send a helper, right? Guess what that helper does? He now tabernacles in us through the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. It is no longer by human hands. It's no longer in this building. We don't have to come here to know that God's presence is real and that he is active and alive in our life. 
but that he has developed us into a spiritual house. Let me say this too. That's why the church is important. You cannot function as a living stone on your own accord. You cannot think it is okay that you come to church occasionally or that you come to church not at all, that you can worship on your own and that you can worship God just as well. This tells us here that Jesus became a living stone, that he is our cornerstone so that we may become a spiritual house, that he is building us up as a place for God to be worshipped in our lives. Think back to John 4. You remember John 4? There's a conversation that happens between Jesus and the lady at the well, right? The lady at the well is looking for earthly satisfaction. She comes to the well to get water. And she's also involved in multiple relationships. She's trying all these different things out, thinking that this right here, these things will satisfy me. And in the conversation Jesus is having with her, he says, those things will never satisfy you. The things of the world will never satisfy you, but I will. I am the living water. And I'll bring about satisfaction. You say, what's that important? You got to remember the rest of the conversation, right? So as it goes about, the woman says, you Jews say that we worship in Jerusalem. And the woman says, but we say we worship here at this mountain. And Jesus' answer is in John 4, 23-24. He said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So how do we worship? Jesus is telling this lady, you're not going to go to a mountain or to a temple anymore. But you will worship in spirit. And that is as individuals, as living stones throughout your week, you should be worshiping in spirit. As a living, breathing, functional stone that God has made you. He has given you life. You're not a non-active, apathetic stone anymore because He has breathed life into you. He has given you life. And out of that, out as Christ is our cornerstone, we become a spiritual house where Christ functions and he, we worship Him. So as we worship in spirit, we understand that it's not about location, right? I hope that you get that. It's not about this church building or the church up the street, whether it's made of brick and mortar or uh, stone or uh, metal or whatever it may be. Whether you worship outside, it doesn't matter where you worship. That is not what defines a church. But it is the fact that Christ in us, as we come together, we worship. We worship collectively. Not at a location, not at a place, but it's about an internal work, internal work that produces activity in our lives. And we act as a holy priesthood. So when we think back to the Old Testament, right, priests, and we think about the priesthood there, do you understand that that 
the priests, the Levites, was God, they, that was in their inheritance, that the Lord was their inheritance. What's Peter? He's using language to help us to understand who we are, what our identity is in Christ, that we are his inheritance. He is our inheritance. He says, when we think back to the Old Testament priests, they did not just live in the temple, right? They didn't just go there. God didn't just call them to be priests. They didn't just set up shop and, and kind of live there and dwell there. But they were active. That's what priests were. That's what Peter is telling these people is he is building upon a thesis that he has developed, which is the fact that Christ is your cornerstone. He's developed you into a spiritual house. And then because you're a spiritual house, you're not just to passively sit there, but you're to be active. That is what a priest does. They are active. What makes us holy as a priesthood? Christ makes us holy, not your activity. But out of Christ, because we understand Him as our cornerstone, we also understand that He is the one that brings about spiritual activity and we spiritually are active in our life because of Him. That we desire to be functional stones. And I feel like there's too many dead stones in churches today that are acting as if Christ is not their cornerstone, that He has not breathed life into them, and that He has not given us a purpose that's greater. There's too much of that. They were not called to be passive, just set, as I said, in the presence of God or in the midst of the temple. So here is a challenge for you today. Do you attempt to live your Christian life as just a dwelling place for the Lord? Are you content with the fact that the Lord, okay, I'm a believer. Christ dwells in me. He lives in me. Are you okay with just that? Or are you saying, God, use me? Because if God lives inside of you and He has made you a spiritual house where He dwells, your next thought or your next desire should be, how can I be used? The Spirit of God does not just let you passively sit by. He has called us to a holy priesthood, the holy activity. Are you passively watching time go by? Are you content that way? would like to ask most Christians that are you content just sitting in a building for a couple hours a week and not doing anything I sure hope not I do may that be a that be a challenge to all of us may that be your prayer you know we talked about um, Isaiah last week send me Lord what does that look like for you? Something between you and the Lord. As a living stone, He's given us all a purpose. Or is it producing spiritual and physical activity in your life? Those are observable things, right? There's things that you can look at and say, okay, is there something being produced in my life? Again, we are not just called to a holy priesthood to enjoy God, but to demonstrate His glory to the Lord. That is what we are, to demonstrate His glory to, to the world. And the primary demonstration of this is that as living stones, we proclaim a message of offense. 
Jesus never said that his life, what he would accomplish on the cross through his resurrection would be popular. It is offensive. It was offensive to the Jews and it is offensive to the world in which we now live. It is a message of offense. The good news is not good to those who do not desire it. It is not. When people don't desire it, you've ran into them before as you proclaim the news of Christ. It is not good news to them. They don't want to hear it. Speak it anyways. Let it be offensive. We live in a world today, and especially in an evangelical world, where we try to muddy the water. We try to shallow the gospel. Don't. It's offensive. It always has been throughout history. It always will be. And trust the Lord that he will set forth his purpose in sharing that offense and going out and saving people. See, men and women desire to live a life for themselves. That's how we all once were. And set up man-centered religions to make themselves feel as they are part of their own salvation or joy. See it, right? Let's look around. Just the inner self with Eastern religions. Get into meditation and how do I feel better about myself? Give personal insight. Or other religions that teach rules and laws and customs. All of these things. It's a message of offense when you come along and you say, you don't have to do any of that. Christ has already accomplished all that for you. You want inner peace? Go to Christ. If you're worried about living up to a rule or a law, go to Christ. He's accomplished it all. This is where we see Jesus, the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And this is where I want to go back to the that the gospel didn't fit the narrative of those folks. It didn't. But that's okay. The, the gospel changes lives. second portion of that is also, not only is it a message of offense, but it proclaims the excellencies of God. Because you see there are sheep and goats, right? That's what we're told in the scriptures. There's distinction among people so we start here it's a stumbling block for some people but for some people it shows the excellencies of who God is and if you're a believer in this room that's who you are that you have understood the fact that who God is I want to read that one more time because I think it's great verse 9 says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession listen to this that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who does Peter say that you may proclaim it is the church's mission it is the church's purpose to proclaim that. Peter here is reminding us of being called out of darkness into marvelous light. Go back to John. We think about how that's contrasted often in the early chapters. John writes it, but no doubt that Peter was there. 
and understood that contrast. You know, that we were, as the text goes on, we were not a people, but now you are God's people. You see, you were once in darkness, now you are in light. You were once not God's people, but now you are His people. It says, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see the difference once we lived in darkness, content in our wicked ways. But the kindness and grace of God saved us. That's what Ephesians says. Let me ask you, if, if, if you've been saved out of darkness, which demonstrates our own weakness, again, our own hatred for God, our own rebellion against God, why in the world would you not want to proclaim the excellencies of the one who saved you out of that darkness? Why would you not seek that? I said this weeks ago, go ahead and pray for people in your life, that the Lord would send people your way, and that you would be bold to go out and proclaim these things. Proclaim the excellencies of God who saved you and me and you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Second Corinthians two fifteen through 16 says, But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And listen, this is who we are, church. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You, you church, are a pleasing aroma that language goes back to the Old Testament. It, it was, as they offered up sacrifices to the Lord, it was often demonstrated that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So we, here we see it again. Peter using that language that you and me are pleasing aromas to the Lord. And we spread that aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. It should be refreshing to people. Good news. Pleasing. To the one, it says in verse 16, we are an aroma that brings death. There's that stumbling block. There's that rock of offense. As we proclaim the gospel, we will be what ultimately brings an aroma of death to some people. It says to the other, an aroma that brings life. And I've said this many times in my life. It is not mine or your job to determine who that is. We go out and we proclaim the gospel, knowing that it will be offensive, trusting that the Lord will save by His Spirit. So we see Christ as the foundation. We see that we're built in a spiritual, into a spiritual household. And we see that also, we've been called as living stones to be active, holy priests. And then out of that, right, we proclaim. Once we understand our identity in worship, we take that worship and we proclaim who Christ is. 
so that Christ may be known as the foundation of salvation. That's it's full circle. The purpose of the church as living stones is to bring us back around to the living stone. It is to reveal who that living stone is through our spiritual acts of worship. How are you doing, church? I want to finish with this. I want you to think back to Daniel chapter 2, right? So if you don't think back, it's okay. Can't remember where it's at. I had to look it up myself. But it sheds some light on this. So King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon has taken Jerusalem, Israel, Judah primarily into captivity. They've been exiled. We know that Daniel and some of those who have went along in that exile are considered men of wisdom. Chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. It's a fearful dream for him. It's one of statue of all the kingdoms. He doesn't understand it. All he sees is it's a statue of... of and he don't even know it's kingdoms at the time. He sees a statue. And the statue is made of, of gold, silver, bronze, iron. And then, you know, it says in between there, uh, I believe it's stone. At the end of the... At the very bottom of that statue. And then in that, it says that a stone mountain not made by human hands destroys the statue he couldn't make sense of it he brings all the astrologists the magicians the people who you know thought they knew everything he, he brings them before him he says explain this dream to me help me to understand why I had this dream of the statue and this stone comes up out of the ground not made by human hands and destroys the whole statue Nobody can answer. They try to figure it out. He puts them to death. He goes to put all the wise men to death. But Daniel says, oh, hold up. No. Let me seek the Lord in this because there is no man that can, can explain this mystery. But there is a living God. And that was Daniel, Daniel's words to King Nebuchadnezzar. Give me time. There is a living God that can help me to understand what he meant by this dream that he gave you. So the huge stone, as Daniel helps him to understand, he does break it down. He says, the first kingdom is yours, King Nebuchadnezzar. The second kingdom is that of the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and, and then the Romans. He kind of explains that these are the kingdoms of the world. And that this big stone that's, not, that's created not by human hands but by God is a, is a stone that will... Fill the entire earth. You, you see that? What, what Daniel's getting to? What this dream is showing us? That the gospel will fill the entire earth. It is greater than any kingdom. Why do I bring this up? Because it's talking about a stone. There's different language here. Stone, rock, whatever it may be. But what do we see destroying these earthly kingdoms? We see the stone. Listen to Daniel 2.44 as he states, In the time of those kings, as he's 
helping King Nebuchadnezzar understand. It says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and brings them to an end. Here's the beautiful part. But it itself will endure forever. That is your good news. That is why we are living stones. That is what encourages us to function and to proclaim the gospel. To live in as a spiritual household. To bring forth the good news of Christ. Because it breaks down whatever the world has set up. But you don't know it unless you proclaim it. Daniel, 600 years before Christ, is proclaiming what is occurring in our day and age now. The gospel continues to go forward. It fills the entire earth. It's breaking down barriers, divisions, everything. It is saving people. So let me ask you this to finish. Are you living a life that recognizes that you are a living stone that makes up the church of the living God and proclaiming the good news about Christ? So are you living a life of of worship each and every day so it sets forth the stage that you can bring the the gospel message See, the two are intertwined. Worship and proclamation of the gospel. You can't do one without the other. It it bewilders me to think when people go to a church and, and they walk out and they said, man, that was a great service. Really worship the Lord today. But nothing else in their life demonstrates it. Nothing else demonstrates it. We should be the first to say, how do we get this message out? What does it take, O Lord? What does it mean in my life? What does it mean in the life of of my coworkers, my friends, my family? Because see, worship produces proclamation. So, Are you living a life of worship? And is it producing proclamation? Do you see, again, that Christ is your cornerstone? Because I finished there. If Christ isn't, I ask that he be. I ask that you trust him that he is your cornerstone. Because remember what I said before, nothing else can come out of that. And out of that we worship and out of that we proclaim. So, Lord, we thank you uh, this morning as, Lord, that you worked through the error of my ways. You worked through just my mess-ups so that may your message be heard. That your word be proclaimed. Lord, that you would be in each and everyone's life here our cornerstone that we dwell on that daily, that you are what upholds us and you makes us in, you make us, us into a spiritual household. One not where we sit apathetically by as the world 
dies in their sin, but one in which we bring and act as holy priests and we proclaim a holy good news of the message of Jesus Christ so that others too may become living stones and that you continue to build your church upon that cornerstone, that truth. These passages take me back to thinking about the conversation that Jesus had with Peter as he asked and he says, who do people say I am? Peter answers, Lord, you are the Messiah and it's on that rock, Lord, that may we build the church. It's on you. So may we not give away to all the opinions of the world and the thoughts of the world, but may we love you, Lord. May we be obedient to you. May we worship you. Thank you for this time. May we leave this place. And Lord, go and be a spiritual house where you dwell and we proclaim.